every visit, every letter, I just fell more and more in love with him. So you were dating a serial killer, right? Yeah, while I was how, married. How did your husband feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, it really went so, crazy. What's up, everyone? I hope you're all doing well. This podcast is crazy. It's unbelievable. And I thought I would give you a little bit of an overview of the story because there's so many small details. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this case, this will help you understand a little bit of the backstory. And for those of you that are, this is a good recap. So sit back, relax, and let's get into it. Krugersdorp is a small mining town in South Africa, and between 2012 and 2016, 11 murders took place. The murders were carried out by a group called Electors per Deus, which means chosen by God. These murders are known as the Appointment Murders and the Satanic Murders. The leader of Electors per Deus was Cecilia Stein. Cecilia managed to convince a group of devout Christians that she was a former high-ranking witch. She mesmerized them with her stories of the ritual abuse she'd seen and endured, and the danger she faced because she fled the satanic church. She directed her followers to slaughter 11 people, telling them they were performing God's work. But Stain's real motives were revenge and financial gain. You might be thinking, how on earth did she manage to convince this group of people to carry out these horrific murders on her behalf? Krugersdorp is home to many fundamentalist Christians who believe that Satan is an ever-present threat to their community, particularly their children. They're constantly on the lookout for signs of occult influence and certain aspects of popular culture, including Harry Potter, Spider-Man, and even Santa Claus are condemned. It's in this environment that Stain flourished. Once Electus Padeus was up and running, the self-proclaimed ex-witch initiated her reign of terror by orchestrating several bloody slayings in 2012. With their occult overtones, they were swiftly dubbed by the police and the media as the satanic murders. More murders occurred over the next four years, but the police were unable to find any suspects. Electors per Deus activities in Krugersdorp culminated in May 2016, when they took three more lives. These murders were called the appointment murders, but their killing spree was about to come to an abrupt end. The cult consisted of six main members. These members are Cecilia Stein, who was the leader and manipulated her followers into doing these brutal killings. Next up, we have Zach Valentine, who is a financial advisor and played a crucial role in these killings. His wife, Michaela Valentine, was also briefly part of the cult, but she met a very horrific end. But more on that later. Next, we have Marinda Stein, who was a school teacher from hell. Her two kids were also part of the cult, LaRue Stein and Marshall Stein. LaRue Stein plays a very important role in this podcast, so remember that name. And last but not least, we have John Barnard. He was kind of the distraction. He would sit in the room next door and do things like play music so the people in the building couldn't hear that someone was being murdered. Now that we've set the scene, let's get into the show. Okay, let's go. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, everybody? And welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. Today, my guest is Maritska Kutzer. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I might have butchered that a little bit. A little. But, um, <laughs> and she's here to talk about the Krugersdorp cult killings and her relationship with convicted killer, Larux Stain. Yes. So, just to get started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm a Kutzer and I'm known as the journalist who fell in love with a killer. But much more than that, I'm celebrating 10 years as a journalist um, this month. Um, I love writing crime stories, human interest, 
And also I've recently ventured into TikTok, you know, a bit of content creating and also telling the stories a bit further. And um, can you tell me a little bit about Krugersdorp? Oh, yes. I'm born and bred in Krugersdorp. So basically went to school there, went to church there, and I actually started working there at the local newspaper, um, the Krugersdorp News. And that's also how I came upon the story. I don't know why I stopped like in the middle. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I don't know. Krugersdorp, let me tell you about Krugersdorp, right? So we grew up there. Um, it's your, your typical suburbia, Afrikaans people. You feel like it's somewhat conservative, you know. Um, try not and swear. We go to church on Sundays. They watch Seven Alarm, you know, seven o'clock at night. So it's really like a, a family type of place. But I mean, you know, if you look back at Krugersdorp and as a journalist, you know, I can't help but wonder if there's something in the water because every now and then something really hectic happens in Krugersdorp, you know? So the thing about the Krugersdorp killings is, is I think that when crime happens, you never think it can touch you. You never think, you know, no, it won't happen to you. But with the Krugersdorp appointment murders, you know. Um, That's I what they were called, the appointment murders. The appointment because murders. Because people were getting murdered. At appointments. Yes. So basically we had three appointments, um, all three for six o'clock at night. The victims go missing, all three of them. They had similar, you know, type of jobs, especially the first two. And then they were also murdered exactly the same way. So, I mean, after the second victim, we already started, you know, calling the police, asking, listen, yeah, is this a serial killer? Because... That type of crime was very unusual for Krugersdorp. You know, I worked at um, the Krugersdorp News, the local newspaper, for a few years. So you get used to the type of crimes. You know in your township, you know, there would be more stabbing. You know in the suburbia area, it's more likely to be a housebreaking. But when the, these ki- or the killings started, the first one that we knew of was Anthony Schofield. So, and you must know, when you write crime a lot, so now you've got... An elderly man found murdered in his boot in a normal suburbia area. You know, everything there shouted, this is not right, this is not right, this is not right. You know, because it's not a typical murder that you would have found in Krugersdorp. Mm. So I think that was an initial shock. But I mean, it wasn't even two weeks later, the second person was killed in exactly the same way. So, you know, you couldn't help but feel that the town was being targeted or... You know, I certainly felt, I, I, I felt like someone was busy killing my people, you know. And because the fa- everyone knows each other. Yes, but also the thing is with the second murder, I, I actually knew Kevin McAlpine, you know. Um, it's a family friend of ours. And I remember I, was, I went to the scene. So it's 11 o'clock at night. The, my police contact literally phoned me awake and said, hey, they said, pop up, you know, like get your ass here. And you get to a scene, it's dark, it looks like a normal scene. You see the lights, you see the police tape, you see people up and down. But the, you, you don't always think the victim lying in the boot is someone you know. You know, I remember his father pacing up and down, him, you know, storming my way, saying, Mariska, thank goodness you are here. Now I'm thinking to myself, it's like the story is running into my arms. You know, it's 11 o'clock at night, you don't really click. And the man keeps on saying, Mariska, it's Kevin in the boot. It's Kevin in the boot. And I don't click, man. You know, sh- I'm busy giving the guy a hug, um, trying to, you know, um, comfort him. And then when he said his wife's name, 
You know, he said to me, what, what will you Anita say about this? I swear to you, it's like a brick wall fell on me right there because that was the moment I realized that this is real, you know. I mean, as a journalist, you get so used to looking through the lens of the camera. So it's a female um, person that's died or a male. You get their names, but you are taught not to get too involved. But, I mean, when it's someone that you literally know, like you, you know them so well that you know their mother, their father, their sister, I mean, it kind of just breaks you. I think that's the first time this story, you know, it, it broke me or shocked me mm -hmm. because it was a different reality. Because there is a disconnect as a journalist mm. or a, a reporter, you know. Um, you're reporting on a case, but at the same time, it almost doesn't feel real yeah. because you're just telling a story of what happened and... You, like you say, you can't get too involved because mm. if you get too involved every time, it's not the, the right line of work for you. Yeah. I mean, then the third murder happened and I read that your cousin was accused of the murders. Yes, yeah, so that was the second blow. I think uh, I always tell people, you know, and sometimes people are like, don't be so arrogant. Then I say to them, I feel like a victim of this case, you know, because first someone I knew was murdered then my own cousin, my blood cousin, got arrested for the murders, right? You know, and then obviously the third one being LaRue. But, I mean, after Anthony Schofield and Kevin McAlpine was killed, you know, a few days later, um, Anneli Lottegan went missing. And I still remember that night, you know, um, on the CPF groups, everyone was looking for this woman that went missing. And I remember Kevin's sister, so that's the second victim, sending me a message on Facebook saying, Mariska, please help, it's happening again. You know, and then you sit there because in a way people look up to you as a journalist or they come to you with their problems and you always try and solve it, you know. Yes, you can only write a story, but in a sense, you know, you are helping them. But you feel so helpless when people are telling you, hey, there's a murder happening again. And A, you are so scared. You don't even, we, we didn't even know who it was at that time, you know. But, I mean, that's why I said it felt like the whole town was being, you know, one for one being killed. And when my cousin got arrested, I think that was one of the most difficult times in this case, right? Because it was on Thursday afternoon and my aunt phoned me and she said to me, the police took Fabian. Funny enough, I saw a photo of him this morning on Facebook and he looks so much better. But, you know, he sat in jail for four months for something he didn't do. Why uh, did they think he did it? What evidence did they have? Nothing. So how could they arrest him? <laughs> Do you know what happened, right? At, I think at this stage, you know, when all three murders happened, it, we, it was all over the news. You know, the police had so much pressure on them to arrest. And they, they had, you know, a few clues. Like, for instance, CCTV footage saw white people walking away from the scene, you know. So they, they were looking for people. But... At this stage, they were literally going into areas like Blickies. That's Burgerswip in Krugersdorp. It's like a really, really um, poverty-driven area. And apparently the police went in there with buckies, picking up people from the streets to come stand in the parades just to try and get people linked to the case. Mm. But my cousin, he unfortunately had a bad rap in town. You know, he's got... He was one of those naughty ones, you know. Um, we used to joke and say he's the mayor of Blickies because he would walk around in his slippers and a Nike tracksuit pants up and down causing, you know, chaos and havoc. So when something went wrong, 
they, you know, usually looked at Fabian to see, you know, isn't it Fabian and his friends? But what also happened is, is that someone, Christian Krier, he was also linked to the murders initially. He linked my cousin while he was being questioned. But it's so funny because afterwards when we spoke to him, we asked him, you know, why did you confess to a murder you didn't commit? And he said he was so scared and he just wanted the police to stop torturing him that he thought that if he would confess, they would stop. But the irony mm. is, is my cousin, I remember him telling me, you know, they're sitting in the police station, um, let's say two small rooms next to each other. And he said, yeah, he sits there and he's listening to someone next to him who he doesn't even know who it is, confessing to the murders and saying that my, you know, my cousin did it. And, you know, can you imagine that feeling? You are sitting in a police station. You don't even know why you are arrested. Now you hear a stranger saying that you said he must kill him, you know. So Christian Krieren, and not a lot of people have reported on this, and I actually interviewed him when he came, you know, out of jail. You know, that he, he confessed, and like you said now, to the funniest things. Like, for instance, he, he confessed that they killed the people, but he said it happened under the murder tree. I mean, there's no such thing as the murder tree if you look at the actual killers and you talk to them, you know. He, for instance, said that, um, he told the police that my cousin told him that they are not killing the people, they are, you know, putting them to sleep. Bizarre, funny things, you mm -hmm. know, but it, it, it was out of fear, you know, and he... He was actually linked because he bought a cell phone from a Pakistan shop, you know, like a second-hand shop. And that cell phone belonged to the killers. So that's how he initially, you know, got, mm. in, you know, involved into the case. But, I mean, he actually had nothing to do, both of them, at all. Can you tell me about some of the people in the cult? Just like the main, the main culprits, the leader mm. and a few of the more important members to the story. Yes. Okay, so... The OTC, Overcomers Through Christ. Is that what they were called? Yes. Okay. Okay, so it all started there, okay, in a Bible group, um, the Overcomers Through Christ, okay? And this woman, Ria, was giving teachings against Satanism. So in a way, Cecilia Stein ended up there, and she is the main um, character of the Electus Perdaeus group, you know? And her way in was saying she's an ex-Satanist, okay? Obviously, you know, think about 10 years back, 15 years back, not knowing a lot about Satanism. You know, people were freaked out. They were intrigued. They were fascinated. So, and that's also in the same group as where Miranda Stein and her children came in. So it was all like a Bible type of group. Then eventually, you know, the creator of the group decided to do different materials. And she wanted to do, um, because the first one is, um, the first subject they did was know your enemy. That's where Cecilia fitted in because obviously she's an ex-Satanist. Everyone wants to know about, you know, her journey, what, what, what. But then the program was flipped over to know your saviour, okay? And that's where Cecilia kind of lost her, her marbles. Okay? And Ce Cecilia became the leader of this cult. Yes. Yeah, so after this happened, remember now Cecilia didn't get the attention she wanted anymore. And... You know, the, lead, oh, um, the woman who basically wrote the two programs, Ria Grunewald, she was also busy, you know, distancing herself from Cecilia, going in a more like Christian 
um, vibe. She um, got a pastor to help her with the program and, and, and. And obviously Cecilia didn't like this, okay? So they started form, or they formed this group, Electus Perdeus, okay? Cecilia was the main one. She's, you know, she claimed to be an ex-Satanist and a 33rd generational Satanist, okay? And what was that group about? Like what was their mission or... Okay, so it all started with, I would say, let's call it revenge killings. Cecilia made a group of people believe that the people they were killing did bad things. You know, for instance, they would say, for instance, um, when the person is killed, she would say, I looked through their phones and I saw their children pornography on it. Or I looked on her phone and I saw, yes, she did... Um, steal money from this and this and this. But basically the Electus Padeus group, in my view, and the way LaRue explained it to me, it was like an extreme Christian group. So they thought they were um, they were doing God's work. They thought, you know, because they were talking out about the Bible, there was nothing satanic about it, okay? So they thought they were busy fighting against ex-Satanists, or that is what Cecilia made them believe. Okay. You know, the Bible was involved. They still read the Bible and tried to do good things. But, I mean, the people who they killed, they thought were people that was involved with bad things. So Cecilia was the leader, yeah. and she did she ever participate in any of the murders? No. The joke about Cecilia is, right, she is the, she's the puppet, puppeteer. Is it the puppeteer? The puppet yeah. master. <laughs> right. She orchestrated every single thing, but she, she didn't lift her hand. She doesn't have one drop of blood on her hands. The irony is, and something that not a lot of people know, is, for instance, when they did the appointment murders, the second guy, Kevin McAlpine, Cecilia actually came up to the flat because it happened... They stayed in the same um, block of flats, but the murders happened on the first floor and Cecilia stayed at the bottom. She came up, looked at the body and kicked the body, you know, and then... So after the murder was done, she after went... After the murder is done. So that's about the worst thing, or I can say the closest she got to the murders. But I mean, can you imagine? She's not even part of the murders. She comes up, she kicks the body and takes her cell phone and, you know, walks away. She didn't help clean the... Um, clean the scenes or nothing. I remember LaRue explaining to me, because remember the, the appointment murders was his time to shine. Even, I know it sounds bad, but remember in this group you had Cecilia Stein, okay, she's the one pretending to be an ex-Satanist. You've got Marinda Stein, that's the school teacher, her two children, LaRue and Marshall, you had Zach Valentine, and then you had John Barnard. Okay, the thing with what happened is, is all these years, Miranda actually, she, she started keeping her children away from the family. So she started, you know, they weren't allowed to see their father or their grand or whatever. So by the time this group formed, you know, and they got stronger, at the end it was LaRue's time to shine. So, you know, he has never committed murder, but at this point, Cecilia says to him, listen here, the Satanist, have kidnapped your girlfriend, and this is a made-up girlfriend. So he was believed, he was told that he had to get money to pay this, you know, the Satanist so, to release her. But he didn't have a girlfriend? He did, no, not a real one. So how did they convince him that he had a girlfriend? Cecilia had, a cell, had cell phones with multiple... Oh, and you, she was talking to him on the yes, cell phone? Yes, yes, no. yes. No, she was catfishing him? Yes. His girlfriend's <laughs> name was Cupcake, or her nickname, so... The funny thing is, now you must know, he's never committed murder. LaRue was always, you know, the odd one out. 
and then it was his time to shine, you know. So it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, some of them, I want to say like a few of these murders, you kind of get the idea that they are enjoying it. But, you know, with LaRue, you know, it got to a point, and that's how I see it a lot, is, is that he tried to impress them. But not just impress them, you know, with the murders. I mean, that was his opportunity to fit in somewhere. And that's kind of sad. Yeah. There's a whole story there. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me about some of the murders? Like, were they all pretty much the same or did they differ in the way the people were murdered? Yeah, you see now exactly with this. You know, the appointment murders was committed by LaRue. He personally told me he had to go do research on how to commit murder and he decided to strangle them because it had less blood. Um, that's what I wanted to tell you about him and Cecilia. So LaRue even told me that when he committed the murders, he had to research how to do it. Then he researched how to do it with the least blood. And after he had, because he was, his mother literally told him it's either you or them, okay? So he had to strangle them. And then when, after the people died, they would go down, Cecilia, Marinda, and whoever, go have their tea or whatever. And then LaRue, he's 20 years old, he's left with the body. Then he had to remove the body by himself. And put it where? Well, that, that's not what they did. Is they, they took the cars. Remember, the cars were parked in front. So him and John Barnard, John Barnard would move the car around inside the courtyard. LaRue had to put the body into a dustbin. You know those big dustbins? Mm. Then take it out. Then they had to go through a staircase, like a fire escape. With the bin, the first body they put in crates. They had to use a crate. Here they go in the dark with the body, you know, all the way downstairs. Then they put the body inside the, the boot. They take the car, they drive, they go park the car on a random street and then they walk away, you know, hope, and they leave the keys in the ignition hoping that the car would get stolen or, you understand? The like, victim's car. The victim's and, car. And the victim is inside the boot, dead. And was that the only way they would kill people or were the, there other methods? No, that was the last three, you know, LaRue's um, murders. But, I mean, it varied from stabbing them with knives and um, axes to shooting. Um, one of the victims was shot. Um, some of them were strangled. The first um, four murders that happened in 2012 was committed by Zach Valentine and Miranda Stein. So the first two was Natasha and Joyce. Zach committed that and he actually stabbed them, okay? Then the Reg Benedictson, that's the pastor. That's when Miranda helped Zach. They attacked him, stabbed him. They even used... Um, Axe. Okay, so that's and then Michaela is Zach's wife. So what happened is Michaela was part of the group, Zach's wife. But when the first murders happened, it was too much for her. She was supposed to be part of it. She even chickened out, you know, in one of the occasions. Then, you know, it kind of became knowledge that Michaela wanted a way out. She phoned her mom and said, you know what, I either need a lawyer or the police, but you know, you need to help me. And then they orchestrated her murder. Her murder was so gruesome, but now Miranda, the school teacher, murdered her. Zach left the house. So one of the wives was murdered. Yes, because she wanted to talk out. She wanted to get out. And that. Now, and how did the husband feel about that? No, he was part of it. Zach, Zach Valentine, helped kill his own wife. So he left the house open. He drugged her in a coffee, and it's so disgusting. He even had sex with her the previous night. So everything before the murders. Before the murder. Okay, so everything orchestrated. And the thing about Michaela Valentine, she would remain the, the threat 
you know. So, and this happened in 2012. They were only caught in 2016. But for instance, the reason why LaRue committed the murders, Michaela was always the excuse because they killed someone in their own group. But not only that, they managed to get away with that for four years. If LaRue, when they were caught, if LaRue did not confess about some of these murders, some of them would have still been unsolved, mm. you know. So that was a big thing, you know. And in that murder where, where they stabbed her, I think it was more than 50 times, apparently the blood was on the ceiling, it was on the walls, it was on the bedside tape, you know, and it was used with a knife that had... You know, the little teeth, like yeah. a fish knife. So it really rips in, into you. And, you know, pull it out. And you know how sick Marinda is. She took her daughter, Marshall, with me. And you must know, Marshall was only 14 years old at this stage, right? She gave her a, a knife at the scene and said to her, she must stab Michaela. And you must know, Michaela was like, you know, someone that you looked up to, like an auntie or someone that you really like. So Marshall had to stab her. And when she stabbed her, Marinda said to her, well, now you are just as guilty as I am. Said so this to her daughter who to was her 14. Own daughter, to her own daughter. So there's something in the water. <laughs> I said you there's something in the water. But can you imagine being manipulated and conditioned like that, you know? No, it's crazy. And that, Okay, so that was our first four murders, the 2012 murders, okay? A lot of people say that is a cult related because the first two or the first three victims was involved with that group, Overcomers Through Christ, and the teachings and, and, and. And like I mentioned, when Cecilia didn't get the attention she used to get, this was her way to re retaliate. Then, after that, they struck again. I'm trying to think what they did first. They went for the Mayers, okay? The Mayers is a very rich couple in um, Krugersdorp, Noordjewel, okay? How they came into play is that um, their friend John Barnard, he was also sentenced with them. He got the least amount of time because he didn't actually commit any of the murders. He confessed right in the beginning, so he got a very reduced sentence, I think, of 20 years. But it was his bosses. So he worked for the mayor. He gave um, Cecilia and Zach, you know, the intel of what's going on there. And you know what's very interesting? That a lot of people don't... It's not, it's not that they don't know it, it's like they don't see it. This happened in November 2015, okay? And it was Marinda and um, Zach and Marshall that went to the house to commit these murders. They were also stabbed, like, multiple times. Apparently, the mayor's wife, um, she was stabbed so many times her hand was, like, hanging on a piece of um, flesh, yeah. You know, that's how badly... By like the tendons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry for my English. But now when this happened, the interesting thing is, this was in the time that Marshall was in matric. And, you know, everyone knows that Marshall is the smart one in the group. She got like six or seven distinctions, right? But can you imagine being an 18-year-old? This is your record exam. It's like, oh, the last beat. Here you are going out with your mother, going to commit murder. And the irony is, for instance, like LaRue was supposed to be with at that murder. And while they were preparing to go, he put a, a gun on his lap and the thing fell and he, he didn't know that it was loaded, whatever. And he got shot in his um, leg. So he had to go to hospital. And I've said to him before, can you imagine if that incident never happened, then you would have had two more murders on your rap sheet, you know? 
No, it's, but it's insane. Yeah, so that was... So, I heard Cecilia's husband was a police officer as well. Yes. I mean, how did he not know what was going on? Well, the thing is with him, right, I think they, they had a strange marriage. So they literally didn't care about each other's lives. But LaRue said to me as well, I mean, they lived in a flat. So it's Cecilia, uh, her husband, two children, and Marshall and LaRue lived with them in the flat. So they were, I don't know, thinking everyone's spaces and so, but he worked night shifts and all sorts of shifts. So I think he literally just didn't care anymore. Maybe he suspected it. Maybe he didn't care enough to do something about mm. it. You know, but, yeah. And I also heard that uh, Cecilia's daughter witnessed, was, was it her daughter or her son? I don't know which one. Witnessed some crazy things going on in the uh, house where she was... But she said she was like possessed by demons or something, and she was throwing herself against walls and yeah, but the thing is you know what's the thing with cecilia is is she we all know now that she faked it, you know, but mm. I always and a lot of people when they ask me, and I even ask this is how can people fall for Cecilia's lies, you know, and I think it's because we are uninformed. she used something like Satanism that people are scared of, mm. and people don't understand. To control people, you know. And afterwards, you know, we, we heard she used hand gloves. She would put her own blood in the fingertips of the hand gloves, tie it up. So when she's having an attack or these high days, she would, you know, put it in her mouth, bite it open, and then she would spit blood or, you know, that type of thing. Mm. So, you know, and it was during these high days that one of her children, like, you know, I mentioned, you know, witnessed this. But, yeah, I, I till this day, I cannot understand how people could fall for her tricks. I mean, LaRue was sentenced, right? So they say it's about three years that he didn't see um, Cecilia, you know, in person. And then one night he asked me, do I believe in astro travel? You know, and I... Astro travel. Astro travel. What is that, like traveling in different dimensions yeah, or something? Yeah, something like yeah. that. So he believed that Cecilia could travel, or that's what she told him. Could travel through, like, time yes. or something. so he kind of asked me that the one night to get my view on it, on it and tell him, like, no, you are going to be okay, you know. But, you know, do you understand how weird it is? just so it? deeply ingrained Yeah, and because scared. if you think about that, you know, um, they are so mature but so unmature, you mm. know, immature because they've done these horrible things, killing people, drawing money out of other people's bank cards, that type of thing, so they can do the extreme stuff. And then when it comes to something like this, they still ask, is this real? You're trying to, they're trying to find ways to like rationalize what they've done and, and that kind of stuff. And um, the one thing I want to know is how long were they able to get away with this before they were caught? And how were they caught? Okay, so, for, well, it depends. We've got two answers. Because if you look at the t 2012 murders, it basically they, they got away with it for four years. But it was only in 2016 when LaRue committed the appointment murders where they were eventually caught. But... They first, I think LaRue and Marshall was caught, right? And they were caught because they had um, CCTV footage of LaRue using the card of one of the victims and Marshall withdrawing uh, money at ATM. You know, and obviously when they arrested the brother and sister, they looked at the mother. And, you know, for long they tried to figure out how would they link the mother to the case. But it's very funny because the brother and sister was arrested for the murder, then they caught Zach Valentine because Zach faked his own death. So that's one of the other murders is they actually took a man off the street or, you know, a homeless man 
and they murdered him and, you know, made it look like Zach died in an, uh, a car accident to get life insurance. So do you know about this one? No. You don't know about this one? Oh, after the mayors, you must remember now that the mayors, they tried to kill for a lot of money. They thought because they are millionaires, okay, they live in this big mansion. They killed them and they only got like 700 rand out of the, do you see? Then they had to think of a plan. So they orchestrated faking Zach's death, okay? So that's how they, they got Jared Jackson. They took him with on a road trip. Zach said he was going fishing in Pietrastein. So Zach, LaRue and Jared drove in one car and then the school teacher in the car behind with John. So what they did is, is they drugged him in apple juice, not apple juice, orange juice. Okay, first they drugged him. Then LaRue tried to strangle him and it didn't work. So this is also interesting because that's LaRue's first attempt at murder. Is because, you know, he's trying to strangle this guy sitting in the car behind him, you know, trying to, that's crazy. He actually explained to me in detail. I was just like, yo, this is too much for me. Like, I literally don't want to know about this. Then the guy still didn't die. They pulled over on the side of the road and then they um, lit the car on fire. With him inside of it? With him inside of it. Apparently, like the autopsy showed afterwards that he was still alive because they could still find... um, Oxygen in his blood, whatever piece of his blood was left, because only his chest was left. They burned him, so he had no arms, nothing, or whatever left. And they were so smart. You know how smart these people are. Not smart, but I think maybe they they overthought it. But on um, Jared's body, they put Zach's wedding ring, and they even injected him with um, insulin because Zach's a diabetic. So that's how far they went to try and fake Zach's death in order to get a 3.6 million rand life insurance. But you see, there things started getting rocky as well because he left everything he had to Cecilia. I mean, Cecilia was not his wife or his what, what, what. So there already the alarm bells went off mm. at the insurance company. And that's what I wanted to explain. So that's how the rest of them got um, arrested because... LaRue Marshall was arrested in connection with the appointment murders. Then they found Zach. Obviously, he's not dead. He's alive, so they arrested him. Then they saw his um, insurance claim. They saw Cecilia was the main beneficiary. There they had Cecilia and Marina. And everything just started crumbling. Yes, yeah, everything started crumbling. And that's how And when LaRue was caught, he started confessing. And I, he told them about, you know, Michaela's death. And murder, and you know, all the things just mm. started coming together from there. And how did you go from being a journalist that was covering this case to someone that was dating one of the murderers that was part of the cult? <laughs> Who was Larux? Larux. I like how you say Larux because in jail, <laughs> there's a few people that also that he's got a strange name, so they call him Larox. 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 So um, how did you go from a journalist to dating one of the killers? So at a point, me and my colleague decided we were going to write a book. You know, obviously she was much more experienced, but with all the things that I personally experienced, like my cousin, Kevin being murdered, um, you know, I had a lot of inside info. So we teamed up, we decided we were going to do a book, and then we decided she was going to do the victims and I was going to do the suspects. And while sitting there, and you must know my cousin was in prison with, you know, LaRue and Zach. So my cousin helped me in a sense to, 
I don't want to say introduced me to them. I did see them visiting my cousin once. You know, I saw them through the window, what, what, what. But when I initially went to see LaRue, my cousin, you know, just mentioning my cousin opened that door for me because he already trusted me. But the idea was, me and Jana's idea was to get the story out of the, the murderer's mouth. You know, so we saw it with John Barnard, but he was just an accomplice. So he wasn't there when LaRue strangled the people. He was in the room next door playing the music loud so no one could hear. So we first interviewed him. And he told us, you know, a lot of cool things, but I mean... You uh, wanted it to speak to LaRue? No, I wanted to get a murderer. And then I looked at all of them. And I was like, okay, no, Cecilia lies too much because who believes that she's a witch? And I thought, Marinda, she's a school teacher and a murderer. I'm too scared of her. I'm not going to try her. So I went through all of them. And LaRue, he stood out because, because he confessed when he was caught, even though it wasn't the complete truth, he still confessed. Mm. Like something in me said to me, he still had a little bit of human left in him. So I kind of like picked him as my weakest link. I know it sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> I went to prison one day on my off day and I just said, you know, went and met him. And I said, listen, yeah, I'm a risker. I want to write your story, but I don't want to, I don't want to write, yes, you did the murders. I want to understand like what, you know, went down. And I gave him my number at that visit, the first visit, and I left. And I said to him, you know what, I'll come back in a week or two you know, sort of getting to know you, what, what, what. And that same day, I got a call out of prison, you know. And when I picked up the phone, it was, hello, Axel Rue. You know, and I like, kind of shat myself because, you know, how could this just You didn't have? think he would call you? No. And the irony is, is we've spoken about this as well, is in the beginning, we both wanted to use each other. You know, I wanted info and he needed money or whatever. Publicity. Yeah, he didn't actually want to be in the media. I remember in prison, it's it's difficult. You need money to get cigarettes. You need money. Okay, yeah. yeah. You need to live, yeah. you know. So first, like, it was just visiting, what, what, what. But then we started becoming friends. I know it sounds stupid, but, I mean, if you had the opportunity to have a serial killer at your disposal, <laughs> you're going to listen to everything he says, and everything is just so interesting. So, mm. you know, he would phone me every day from prison, right? Tell me about what's going on inside there, what they ate, who's fighting who, who left who, whatever, you know. And because he's in prison and he had nothing else to do, I was his escape to the outside world. So it was kind of a perfect storm brewing because I wanted inside info and he was getting outside info from me. Mm. You know, the real world, things that make him forget he is where he is. And so we started talking more, confiding in each other and... You know what, it's such a stupid story. You must know I was married at this stage. I'm married, we live in a house, I've got a daughter that's like four years old. I was going to say, it was so funny, I was actually going to set it up to no, say, we, I, I was going to say, so you were dating a serial killer, right? Yeah, while I was how, married. How did your husband feel about that? <laughs> it, it really it really went so, crazy. But, but how long was it before you guys started dating? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll get it. Do you know how I realized I had a crush on him? I was listening to the radio and you get a street, LaRue Avenue. And they were talking about an accident in LaRue Avenue. And every time the woman on the radio said LaRue, I would start blushing. I told myself, no, man, you are a married woman. You can't be doing things like that, you know? And so, you know, I kept on telling myself it's forbidden fruit. And I said to myself, you are just obsessed with this because this is all you are doing. 
but we literally started, you know, creating a bond, like friends. He, he started, you know, he felt like my friend, really, really like my friend. And here and there, you know, he was flirting with me or whatever, but the day before he got sentenced, okay, he phoned me that night and he asked me if I would be his girlfriend. And in my head, I, I, I didn't think it would be what I thought to myself what what's the worst that can happen you know it's going to be like a pen pal friendship Mm. I didn't think it would really go you know that far so I just agreed and I also felt sorry for him because the next day he's getting sentenced you know and and how long was he getting sentenced for geez well he got 25 years yeah. That's a while. <laughs> That's a while. But, you know, so I kind of felt bad for him knowing that, you know, his life's kind of over. And I thought, you know, what harm would it be if I said yes? You know, so he asked me out the day before that. And then I still continued to visit him, remember, because I'm still on a mission to get my info, mm. info, info, info. Not realizing. You're going really undercover, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I want to say. Not realizing every visit, every letter, I just fell more and more in love with him. Mm. You know, and it literally got to a point where I went to my husband the one day because we were anyways... So you were dating him and you were still together with your husband? Yeah, well, I was together with my husband and I don't know what I was doing with LaRue, you know. But at some point, you know, I was so miserable in my relationship with my husband that I moved out of the room. You know, and I said to him, you know, I said to him beforehand... I'm sorry, I can't love you the way you need to be loved anymore and you're not loving me the way I need to be loved. So I did kind of, you know, call it off. We were living in the same house, two different rooms. But can you imagine how that went the day that my story landed on the front page of the newspapers? (laughs) I know because, I mean, I know the story went pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, what was that like? How did your family and friends feel about this? Because also, I think one of the things to mention is that you knew some of the victims' families. Yeah, you know? that was that was bad because. Do, do you not? Did you not feel like you were betraying everything and all the pain they had gone through? I was feeling exactly that and even more, because remember, I knew some of the families personally. Other families I started getting to know because of the case. Mm. You know, wanted to get justice for the victims. So when it happened, but you know, you must imagine. You know, you go into work to one day. And when you get to work, you are sent home and you are suspended, you know. Um, How do you go tell the world? That was the most difficult part of this whole story is admitting to someone, guys, I've got feelings for someone I'm not supposed to, you know. And it was really bad because I lost my job. Um, Obviously, I I always say I lost my, my, my marriage, but I mean... That was, you know, a few months coming. But, you know, it was, it was so bad. You know, I lost friends. I lost family. I had family driving up to my gate screaming at me. Are you mad? Just go and tell them it's not true. It's not true. But, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm too sincere or too honest to lie about something mm. like that, you know. Even though I couldn't admit it, you know, at the go point, you know, saying, yes, it's true, what, what, what. I didn't deny it. You know, but it was really it was it was bad. I nearly lost my child, my family, my ex tried to take my child away from me, saying I'm in love with a, a Satanist killer. You know, and in actual fact, if you really understood the story and if you knew the story, you know, you would actually, like I said to you earlier, Larue Michelle was conditioned and manipulated to become mm. murderers. You know, how old was he at the time during these murders? 
Uh, he was 20 when he committed it. It's the worst feeling in the world, mm. losing everything. And the thing is, how do you explain to people what you feel in your heart? You know, like to me, at some point, it felt like ordinary love in the sense of he cannot offer me anything at all. He, he can't offer me anything except love letters, roses he gets mm. out of jail, like out of the garden. You know, and yet I really like had strong feelings for him. And it's not, it's not because he's a murderer or whatever. I actually, I want to say I loved him more for the victim he was, you know, like how broken he was and the things that he's endured, you know. There's, there's so many times where I've looked up to Lodu, you know, and people don't understand that. I mean, he was 20, was, how old was he? About 22 or so when he was sentenced or 20, maybe he was 23 when he was sentenced. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine I com having the balls to commit murder, okay? I wouldn't be able to do it. Like, I feel I, do, I am not that bold. I can't do it. But then take it further. Do you, you have the guts to confess what you did? Like, can you imagine? I think, I think what he did, though, was I think it was cowardice because he was doing it out of fear, mm. you know? Um, I mean, it definitely, I, I wouldn't have the balls to do it just mm. because... I couldn't take someone's life. I would hate to be have that on my conscience. He actually explained to me exactly how it feels like to murder someone. So I'd like to explain it to you because mm. it blows my mind every time. As he says that, you know when you grow up and you're taught do's and don'ts? Like, you no. Know, so when you're committing murder, it's like overwriting every single red flag that comes up. Mm. So while you are fighting this person, your body is telling you, no, don't fight, don't be ugly, but you overwrite that flag. You know, to a point, you know, he explained to me while he was um, busy strangling the people, while he's doing that with all his power, his body is telling him, like, stop it, stop it, stop mm. it. And he said that was the hardest part because his mother is standing right there with the gun pointing at them. So someone is getting killed today, you know? So, and it's always interesting to me when he talks about the red flags and how you have to override them, you know? So, and that's also what I'm saying, you know, not only committing the murders, then he confessed about it. But the thing why I look up to him the most is, is he had the guts to go stand in a high court and, you know, he, he spoke against his mother, against his sister, you know, mm. those are people that he loved. He still, even though he's angry at his mother and he hates her, I mean, you still feel that little bit of, you know, love inside of you. I mean, you. Brain, brainwashing is a real thing, you know. And yeah. I think today there's a lot of mass brainwashing going on. But when you look back in time and you look at other cases similar to this and you see how cult leaders manipulated people, mm. I mean, you find a weakness and you exploit that weakness. Maybe the fear of religion or the fear of death or the fear of someone else you know someone else's beliefs mm. um so i can totally see especially at quite a young age how he was manipulated and so many others were manipulated um i mean and it seems like the orchestrator was cecilia just there mm. to make money off of all of this yeah that's what i wanted to say to you earlier do you know what's the saddest thing as well is especially the appointment murders i mean marshall and larue they were the ones that you know went big they had to kill the people they had to set it up they had to go withdraw the money and all the monies, all their winnings was handed over to Cecilia. Mm. She did not lift a finger to commit any murder. She's the, obviously she's the mastermind, but I mean, she got most of it. And then LaRue, I asked him, what did you guys use the money on? 
Ach, cartons of cigarettes to buy meat for us to eat, buy hoodies. So it's sad someone was killed for everyday nonsense. For nothing, yeah. For and I, nothing. Read, I read that Cecilia was getting quad bikes and new cars. Yeah, and yeah, and that's and that. Thing. And when people would ask her where she's getting the money from, she would say a dead relative or, ah. or was, you know, there was always <laughs> some inheritance or, or something, yeah. How did the relative die? That's what I want to know. Um, Yeah, but you know what's the funny thing about Cecilia? I found, for instance, um, police statements made against her. You know, and as statements her sister made, statements her father made, you know, she went to the extent that she would say that her father is attacking her. Let's say when she's having a high day. She would say her father is attacking her and he's the one hitting her and, you know, trying to kill her in the spiritual world. And, you know, I just find it bizarre that people believe these type of things in this day and age, you know? I mean... So it's, re- it's Religion is... It can be a good thing. And at the same time, it can be a, a tool to weaponize. Mm. And, you know, when you believe in something so strongly, you're going to do whatever it takes to protect yourself and the people around you. So, I mean, I find the biggest weapon in today's society is religion and be- your beliefs you know mm. but exact but that's what i always tell people you know when they say you know this isn't a cult or it's satanistic it's not satanistic they were actually the opposites they were pretending to fight you know the satanists mm. but the thing is if you don't understand something your first you know your first reaction is you're going to you know put up a wall you're going to be wary of it and I think Cecilia just knew exactly how to do that. But she was so vindictive, right? Um, the, LaRue told me a story about one day he came home and he, they learned in biology about the blind spot in the eye. And he's telling his mother, Marinda, Marinda, you know, Mom, we learned this, you have a blind spot, what, what, what. And Marinda said, Cecilia doesn't have a blind spot. And he's like, no, my biology book. And he goes and he gets his book to show his mom. And he was beaten up for how dare he would stand up or second guess, you know, Cecilia. Um, that, you know, that's, that's just, uh, it's just to show you how deep her lies mm. go. You know, if you, Marinda, think about it. She's also a teacher. She uses the exact handbooks or manuals to teach the students in her class. So when her own son comes with the same, no, it's not the same subject, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Say, Mark, cakey. Then she, you know, beats him up. So, yeah, that's the extent of Cecilia's. And you know what's another thing that LaRue told me? Is that um, Cecilia used to lie about him. So she would say that LaRue can't come into a certain room because he has hojas on him, demons or whatever. So he was always accused of doing something wrong. And then the one day it actually led to Marinda beating him up. And she hit him more than 30 times with a baseball bat. And he straight up tuned me. She hit him so hard that he was purple and he peed his pants. So, I mean, for a grown-up man to tell you that story, you must know. He was pretty, you know. He was scared. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's actually also the irony of it. LaRue, he is about a, a head taller than I am. He's a tall guy. He's, like, big. But yet his mother ruled him, you know. That's the, the irony mm. of it, you know. I mean, I want to get back to, so you guys started dating, right? Mm. And did you ever, were you ever in contact with any of the victims' families? 
Did, yeah. they, did any of them contact you saying, like, how could you do this? Um, no, they didn't do that. But they completely ignored me after that words. You know, I have sent to one or two of them, you know, messages saying, I'm really sorry I, you know, broke your heart or, you know, that type of thing. But I know definitely there's still people who's most probably very angry at me. But there's also people that has grown, you know. I remember Hanli Latagan, her brother, when Larue was testifying in court against his mother and Cecilia and his sister. In a break time, he actually went up to Larue and shook his hand and said to him, thank you for being brave enough, you know, to, to speak fight. out. Yeah, and fight him because he's busy there talking the truth and his own mother and sister will get up and say, he's lying. <laughs> So, you know, so it was really, mm. but so that, that was actually one of the beautiful, most beautiful moments was when a victim's brother came to Larue and said, thank you thank for you. talking the truth. You mm. know? Like I know what you've done is, yeah. it can never be undone, but at least you're trying, you know? Yeah. So that I am, I feel blessed now that I say that I feel blessed to have been, you know, to know, to be in moments like that, you know. I know a lot of people judge me and I've paid a really high price for what I've done, you know, for falling in love with a murderer, falling out of love. But there is experiences in this case that no one will ever be able to tell or take away, you know. Um, things like that. It's the, You know what even happened? After the court case, LaRue and Marshall didn't talk for months because LaRue was angry at Marshall for trying to break down his testimony. And I, I assisted in the brother and sister making peace. You know, and it's things that the world would never know, mm -hmm. you know, if I didn't say it now. But, yeah, there's so many, there's so many moments, yeah, that I, that I would do it all over again for. And can you tell me, your relationship went on for how long? About two and a half years. And what kept it going for so long? What was so... Because, you know, I can understand at the beginning where there was such a fascination, you know, but what was it about him that you loved so much? But do you, do you know what you must remember is a, a, a jail relationship is different than a normal one. Mm. It's phases. So you get a phase where he finds you every single day. Then you get a phase where you don't hear from him for two weeks. So every time you think you get used to a phase or you get bored, something else happens, mm. you know, and... Remember, like something else is for the first few months of our relationship, we didn't have um, contact visit. So something that we were looking so forward to, it sounds so stupid, was giving a hug. Mm. We waited months and months and months just to give a hug. And that and kept a first you going. Kiss. Yeah, and even a first kiss, you know. So that is, so now you, you ask, you know, how could I have gone on so long? Sometimes it took months for us to just, do one small thing. One like, small thing. That a normal, like in a normal relationship would happen after like a few days or weeks. Yes, yes, yes. So let's say that's the first kiss. Now you have to wait a whole week before you can come get another kiss. Mm. So, and then let's say after a few months you are used to holding ads, stolen kisses. Then let's say he gets into trouble in jail, which he has. Then they take away his contact visit. Then it's now a new waiting, phase yeah. again. Then you sit through a window with your hand and cry and <laughs> kiss the window. I've been through all of that, you know. Yeah. But I think at the end, it got tiring. Mm. You know. I mean, were you able to have any conjugal visits? No, no, no. So you never had sex? No. In the not, two and a half years you were dating? Yeah. You're not allowed in South Africa. We did try our best. Like we thought out every plan. You even get family day in jail, right? Where your normal visit is, let's say, an hour long, okay, or 45 minutes. 
family day, they open up like a, a rugby field and it's like a braai. You are allowed to braai with inmates. It's crazy, okay? For months, that's what I'm saying. Like you always see, uh, you, you look forward to something, then it either happens or not, but it changes. Months we were like looking forward to this. Get to family day, we never got to do the dirty deed. But I mean, that was also a different experience, you know, walking among, let's say, hundreds of murderers. And then he takes me to them. He's like, come, 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 come meet, let's say, Johnny. Remember mm. I told you about Johnny? And then I'm like, yeah, Johnny kills his wife and his kids. Hello, Johnny, how are you? you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but that's the thing is like with, yeah. in a relationship like that, you start getting used to all those people, you know, so it, you know, you meet them. It's just like, oh, it's just the boys, yeah. you know, it's just the boys. <laughs> I've once sat, you know, waiting for him, let's say, to see him with a prisoner in front of me. And I'm like, no. Okay, so why are you here? <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah. So I couldn't keep that back. The more he answers, the more, eventually I'm like, dude, if you didn't do this, you wouldn't have gotten caught. Why? So you're a journalist and you were covering this case. After you started dating him, did you continue to cover the case? Um, because yes. I think that would be quite, in a way, unethical because you would have, your opinion would be swayed, you know? You wouldn't have a biased opinion. I love this question. So, yes, I did um, still write about him. But remember, in my head, at this stage, I wasn't in a real, it wasn't a real relationship, you know? I felt like I said yes to someone in jail. How am I ever, this is not a real relationship. But the funny thing is when I was fired, they actually went and looked through all of my stories that I wrote about to the To see cookies. if you were saying things nice. like They that, could yeah. not find one word. I was balanced in every single way. And do you know what the other thing is? When my cousin was arrested, I wrote about him too. And no one knew he was my cousin. And that to me was even worse because I'm standing in jail, or not in jail, in court, and I can see my cousin in the dock. And there's people shouting, kill him, murder him, hang him. And I'm standing there, A, I'm a journalist, B, that's my cousin. I still don't even know if he's really a murderer. So that was also difficult. So I want to say basically I did it twice. I twice reported on people I knew and I did it fairly. Mm. You know, with my cousin, but you know what, I did speak to my editors when that happened and said to them, guys, this is what's going on. I don't know if he is a murderer or not. Please don't take me off the story. You know, and it was always that if you ever see me not being fair or whatever, you know, take me off. But like as well with LaRue's stuff, I never interviewed him for the newspaper. So I would interview his father. I would interview this person. But I treated still as mm. any other story, you and, know. And why were you fired? I was fired because I did not want to admit I'm in love with LaRue. Okay. So because basically unethical, that's what they called it, mm. and... Um, on earlock, so I'm not being truthful. What's the word for it? Yeah, you're kind of twisting the truth, maybe. Yeah, yeah, or you know, like, um, you're on earlock, uh, I'm not being truthful. So it, it, it came down to I did not want to admit that I'm in love with him. But the thing is, and I also feel about this now, I mean, look at how many years later it is, who's not even talking to me anymore. We don't even have contact mm. anymore. But what I argued with them is, guys, how can you say I'm in a relationship with someone I've never touched in my life? I was fired for having a relationship with someone I've never touched. How ridiculous is that? Only afterwards, 
months after I was fired did he have his first um, contact visit. So do you see that? So were you fired kind of towards the beginning of the relationship? Well, in the, yeah, or in the middle, you know, because he was moved around a lot in jail, Mm. so he didn't have his visiting what, what, what. Mm. But you understand what I'm saying? So I fought him and said to him, guys, this is is not a real relationship. I see him three times a month. We write letters to each other. I can't even touch him, you know. But I think in in today's age, I think we know how powerful even a phone conversation can be. Like you, you see people, I remember when I was younger, I would meet some person on Facebook or something and I'd fall in love for the day. You know what I mean? <laughs> fall so in love for the I think, day. I think we can, people can fall in love so easily, even without touch, That's you know, true. and I'm sure if you were being honest with yourself and I'm sure you would be, <laughs> you would feel like, especially in the beginning, you probably were really in love with him. But it, you know what the thing is, right? And it's true, but I was denying it. I was, mm. because first I said to myself, you know, it's forbidden fruit. I eventually, I said to you, I prayed. I would say, Lord, if LaRue is from the devil, take him out of my life. Or if you do not want me to walk this road, take him out. Mm. You know, so I really, but there was something in me that also felt that this was, this had to happen. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why. You felt an attraction to this. Yeah. Not not necessarily to him, but like. Just everything that was going on over the years kind of pushed you in this direction. I just feel that if you look at all the journalists available out there, let's say God wanted LaRue's story to come out and God decided a journalist had to tell it. If you look, look at the group of journalists you have available to you, I'm the perfect fit. So sometimes I feel like I'm just like a pawn in the bigger scheme of things, mm. you know, because for, for years I was in, you know, with the murderers, I knew everything. I, I, I almost to extend want to say that I told them when or not to talk. Like I would tell Larry, there's no way you'll ever speak to that journalist or do that interview because it's my interview, you know. Mm. It was your story. It was my story. But, but this, I think this brings up another thing yeah. is, and it's something that I've battled with in the past is how far we go for a story, you know, how far I think people, especially like documentary photographers and journalists, a lot of the time they'll do anything for a story. Like I've risked my life for, I've also for my nothing. Life for stupid for, stories. For, you know, for, for what? For a video mm-hmm. or a, you know what I mean? Um, it is kind of almost a sickness in a way. Uh, do you know what I think it is? And even afterwards, like sitting And I'm, I'm not saying that you, that no, no, you no, dated him for the story. No, no. But. That, that's one of the <laughs> least, like people, you know what, then, then I would rather confess, yes, I was in love and what, 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 mm. because... Remember, I wanted to the story in the beginning, but it accidentally, you know, kind it of happened. happened. Yeah. But I mean, you don't wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to fall in love with a murderer, mm-hmm. piss off my whole family, get fired or whatever. Because you, are, you basically gave up, it seems, every other relationship Everything, in your yeah. life for this. My, my family wrote me off, my mother, my sister, my grand, I lost friends. There's people till this day who I still don't speak to, you know, because of that. But I feel like it was... It's been the worst and the best experience of my life. Mm. You know, because if that never happened, I would have most probably still be working at the same place, living in the same house, doing the same thing, you know. And this has just, it's changed my life. It's changed my perspective. Like never ever will I make that mistake again. I hope not. Like, geez. But like, even now I can feel any other story. is like sometimes I want to do the extra mile then I say to myself, no. You know, so I kind of... Pull back a bit. Pull back a bit, you know. Um, so 
as it was the best thing in my life, I, I, I've learned a lesson. So I won't ever do that, you know, again. But what I'm really cheering on is when I say, you know, like I've never twisted a story for this, you know. I, it's it, it kind of just happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know it was a decision, you know. I could have said no. I could have said leave it. But, I mean, then I wouldn't be sitting here telling this story. And... I've learned so much about God and myself. Like, and, and one day I was driving to work and I had this bizarre thought in my head, right? As a journalist, like you've said, you know, you, you do funny things. So I've worked with a prostitute. I rescued her out of the drug house. I took her for ice cream and then I took her to a safe house and then a Nigerian phoned and threatened me. So I've done a prostitute. I've had a, a deaf hobo who I've taken care of. And then while I was driving to work the one day, I had this thought in my head and I said to myself, what if God gave me this murderer? Imagine one day I get to heaven, you know, the gates, the pearly whites, and God says to me, Mariska, I gave you a prostitute. What did you do with her? I couldn't save her. I can tell you now. I spent months trying to save her. It bombed out. But I can tell you what we actually did. We planted a seed. For a few months she was okay. You understand what I'm saying? Mm. So in my head I'm saying, you know, okay, so God would say good job. Come the hobo, I gave you a hobo, good job. But imagine he came to me and he said to me, Mariska, I put a murderer on your road. What did you do? Imagine I said, well, God, my title as this journalist was too important to me. Or, you know, that's why I said, in a way, it feels like ordinary love. I feel that a lot of the times, and maybe people are going to shoot me for this, but I feel that sometimes we pay too little attention to the suspects. Everyone's always writing about the victims and rightfully so. You should write, you know, what happened. But there's something going on there with the, the murderers as well. Exactly. How did they get there? Mm. You know, people ask me why I always talk about this, um, this Kruger's Dorp, Devil's Dorp. I say, because you know what? The more we are informed, then we can stop it in the future. Because out there is more Larus, There's more Marshala. There's mm. more Mariskas. So if we can discuss about... Toxic parents, people with occults, people keeping people away from family. If we can start talking about this, you know, we can, can maybe, maybe stop. avoid it in the future, yeah. Exactly. Or like pre- it, prevent it. Exactly. Imagine Cecilia was in court, okay? She's got a, a son and a daughter. Don't you think that can be the second generation of Larue and Marshall? Mm. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's I like, do, yeah. It's... So, yeah, I, I, I know I get a lot of judgment. Sometimes I feel that, you know, let's say on a professional level, especially let's say I'm applying for a job or what, what, what. I feel like the Kruger's Dorp thing hangs like, you know. That must be an neck. awkward job interview. <laughs> I must have gotten two really good jobs just because of that. You know, people interviewing me saying, tell me how you did this. You know, when they meet me and they see how I am, mm-hmm. I kind of, you know, win them over. But it really feels to me sometimes that I work double as hard, you know, now to prove myself because I need to, A, prove to them that I'm not... Uh, that you're going to be professional. Yeah, I see me the, the girlfriend of the murderer and then I need to do my normal proving, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been hectic, you know, but I... And, I mean, what... How did the relationship end? Oh. <laughs> if you think it was interesting in the beginning, yo. So that this is all in my follow-up book, right? And the book starts with the end, okay? And the end. So me and Larry always spoke about the real world, you know, not being able to have sex, and also explained to him, 
Dude, when you met me, I was a married woman with a child. You know, you are kind of fresh out of high school. So basically I met someone outside, went on a few dates, and then I fell in love with a real person who I could touch. But now the problem was I still had LaRue. And in my head, I know it sounds crazy, it's how not to break a serial killer's heart. That was on my mind. Like, he's so broken. Like, I can't break him even <laughs> further. So I tried to win him off me. Like, kind of like talking to him just a little less. You know, just to Distancing get... Distancing yourself. Yeah, yeah, like get him off me. And that just made him crazier. Because he could feel it, you know. But it, that's what I'm saying. It, it, at the end, the relationship wasn't that nice anymore. I would be going out, let's say, to a court story or a riot. Then he would phone me from jail. If I do not pick up that phone, he's going to phone three, four, five, six times. And then, then, he, then he gets all crazy, you know. So it really, really got tiring. But then, so as I tried to shake him off and it didn't work, one day I really got a, a bad phone call from someone in jail telling me that he uh, tried to commit suicide. So, yeah, that was really, that was the turning point. Like, literally, when I got that call, I sat there like this and I decided, if I do, because they wanted me to go to a hospital to go see him and help, what to do. So I said to myself, this is now where I choose. Do I stay or do I go? Because if I stay, then it, it can be maybe a way of him manipulating me to keep me. But often people do do that. I mean, and, especially in very toxic relationships, one threatens or yeah, for does sure. something. So I, yeah. I had to choose. And at that moment, I chose to walk away. And it was so difficult, like literally, because he felt to me like a soulmate that I never could get. You understand? Like it feels like your best friend, someone that knows all your secrets and you, you know he's, he's, you know, but you've, you can't literally be together. But I had to walk away because I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't. Mm. I felt like I was being controlled over a phone, you know? And, I mean, that's another trait of people in jail, controlling the people around them. You know, like, I wouldn't go out. I would sit at home because if I go out, I need to explain where I'm going. If I don't pick up my phone, he phones and phones and phones. You know, and it just really got bad. But, I mean, yeah, so the relationship ended with a suicide attempt. And the thing that was really... I was so sad about that because never my... When people ask me, did I do this for the fame or for the story? Never in my life that I think I would be the person someone else wanted to commit suicide over. Mm. Now, like, I've never wanted to be that person. But the thing that, like, that flipped me over was LaRue is a murderer. He knows how to kill people. So the fact that he's not killing himself, he's taunting me. That's how I felt. Do you mm. understand? Because... If you have killed three people successfully and two others... You know how to do it. Yeah, we had to, do you understand? So I yeah. kind of felt like, why are you threatening me was, with your life? Yeah, it was a plea for help or for... Yeah, or for, a plea for don't mm, go. But like, yeah. it was just too much. Like, I just couldn't do it. So I kind of walked away and he stalked me for a few months. And then Devil's Door came out. The documentary. The so documentary. Yeah, how did life change once the documentary came out? <sighs> The sad part is, is we broke up even before the documentary came out. So like a day or two before it was released, I had to write a, a statement to show Max. And I thought to myself, like, and that was a part I felt so lonely. Because remember when I, when I was fired and I had to go through the disciplinary hearings, I'm sitting there alone. Now I'm sitting writing a press release about my own relationship to show Max. 
Now you kind of feel lonely there. You kind of feel like, <laughs> what has this shit show become? You know, mm. I'm writing press releases about my life. But, and something that, when that show came out, I sent him an email and I said to him, remember what I promised you. Because I said to him, I wanted to tell his story. Remember that. Mm. So when Devil's Door came out, I said to him, LaRue, I think I fulfilled my promise. I told your story. Because after that, you know what makes me angry? Everyone judged me until they watched that. I get messages of people f being his fan, other people saying what they can see and why I fell in love with him. So he has gotten fans after this, you know. Mm. And it's awesome because I, w I managed to tell his story. And it's good for me because, you know, the documentary kind of people now think it's cool. You know, they don't judge me that hard. But um, I don't know, I still kind of feel broken afterwards. You know, even now, like sometimes people ask me, do I still speak to LaRue? No, I don't. And then I'm very angry about it. Like I wish actually I could talk to him and scream at him, you know, because it, it's a me It's kind of like I gave up my whole life, my career, my family. I nearly lost my child for him. And then he just decides like he can't talk to me anymore. And I understand I broke his heart. But if you think about it in the real world as adults, we were b it was bound to happen. Mm. Not bound, but you understand what I'm saying? I mean, like, you, you there was a big chance. Were you going to do this for 25 years? You know what? He, if his parole date... Um, or 12 years for good behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but think about this. If, he had to, if I had to still sit and wait, I would wait till I'm 40. I'm 32 now. Okay, like, he, like being another eight years alone. But also like... Uh, I also realized like that I think maybe it was a relationship for a season because as much as I care about him and even though I'm angry at him now, I still really care about him. I'll defend him till the end. But to be honest, like I don't know if I were, would be able to carry him all the way. You know, it's, it's hard carrying. people. What people don't understand, jail, they don't, they don't recover there. They don't rehabilitate. There's no proper therapy. Mm. There's no proper nothing. You understand? So, like, I played a lot of the times I felt like a psychologist for him. Like, all those, you know, type of things. Mm. You know, trying to help him. trying Because try you really are living your life outside. Kind of like normal in a way. Yeah. And he's just constantly sitting in that one spot, you know, never going forward, never going backwards. Just stuck. Exactly. So, I'm sure all of his problems were on you. Exactly, yeah. You know, from entertaining him to helping him financially to like carrying him through the, the, the ugly parts, you know, sometimes he would get so, so, so depressed, you know, like, and I want to say it's like a monthly thing, like almost like PMS, you know. Mm -hmm. And I noticed it's always close to the date he was sentenced. You know, so that was really bad for him because then he's just reminded, you know, of what happened to him. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I it, it was just I think it's the craziest it's the craziest story ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of them. I mean, just to end off, this is a bit of a wild question, but what do you think would happen? Say he gets out in five, ten years, what do you think would happen? I don't know. Because he has always said that if we're not together and he comes out, he's gonna stalk me. But, like, I never thought about it, let's say, not in a relationship. Like, he would say, like, yeah, oh, he would come and he'll sneak into my house and leave a rose or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. But if one thing is for certain, I really hope that in the next few years 
we make peace. Because I would love, like the day he gets out, if he gets out, I would actually love to be there and shake his hand. You know, not even yet, like because this, this case has taken me on so many levels, from my cousin to knowing someone to falling in love with, you know, LaRue. So I, I would really love to see him recover. I would love to see him re rehabilitate. I would love to see him walk out there and get a second chance. I mean, I remember, and you must know, like journalists don't always get it right. I once wrote a story about LaRue before I even knew him. He was in um, court and then he looked around and he winked into the gallery. And we wrote that he was winking at one of the victim's family members. Can you believe we wrote that? Mm. Then I spoke to him when I got to know him, what, what, what. And then one day he says to me. He's winking at you. No, it was his 21st birthday and he looked around and he was winking at his dad in the corner of the court. Shame. And then, but Sorry. do you... Do you also understand what I mean with when you say to me my, my ethics comes into play? Do you understand what I mean why we give the, the, the victims too much? Because, yeah, me, I made that mistake. I wrote LaRue was winking at a I victim. I don't think necessarily too much, but I think that the perpetrator should almost, in some cases, get kind of looked into just but as you understand much. what I'm yeah. trying to say, you shouldn't you know? just dismiss it. Because we as, are so... This guy's a killer and that's it. Yeah. Because like you know, he obviously is a killer and he did disgusting things, but there's more to it. It's not just, oh, he felt like killing someone. Yeah. Um, it should be looked at very... Yeah, it should be looked at in depth and understood because like you say, it can be used to prevent it in the future and also help treat people like him. Hmm. You know what's interesting is the other day I had a conversation. Um, I was doing a Monday murder and mystery with Mariska. And I was doing a, a theme thing for Women's Day for, of serial, women serial killers, females. And what is really interesting is when you look back at other cases, you can kind of see the inspiration the Krugersdorp killers got, you know. For instance, something stupid like Daisy the Malker. She killed both her husbands. They were both plumbers and it was both for life insurance. Then I cannot help but wonder if Cecilia or... So, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. Look back for inspiration. You I'm know. sure, I'm sure. You they know, did there's research, a lot of yeah. things that you kind of, you know, see and then you can't help but wonder, like, where did they get these bizarre ideas? Mm. Anyway. Anyway, it was that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I wish we could do more, you know. Maybe next time I come down, we could do a part two. Yes, yes, but, um, yes, yes. This yes. has been, it's just been awesome to hear your story. And oh, thank, uh, you. thank you for sharing it with myself and uh, the people at home watching. Oh, it was really <laughs> fun. Anyway, thank you everyone for watching this week's episode of the Wide Awake podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers. <laughs> that was well orchestrated. I didn't so, even know you were going to do that. I just <laughs> I didn't I didn't know either. <laughs>